and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I truly have been overwhelmed by the response the book continues to get. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean the world to us if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach here at the Intentional Performers Podcast. Thanks again to all of you who continue to support the podcast, the book, and our strong skills facilitators and coaches as well in the corporate world. Now to today's guest. Sam Walker is an author, and and that's how I found out about him. He wrote a book called The Captain Class. It's a terrific book. It's loaded with information, data, research. I pulled out some of my favorite nuggets in today's conversation, but I highly recommend you check out Sam's book. He profiles the captains of the 17 greatest dynasties in sports history. He's also a columnist. He's a keynote speaker. He's a team-building consultant. He works with some amazing professional sports organizations, corporations, military units, nonprofits, you name it. Sam is somebody who really cares about what it takes to build elite teams. I think that's at the core of what Sam is most curious and interested in, is how do you create championship teams? What goes into the culture? What does the leadership look like? How do you create an environment for people to thrive? And he came to this place after spending two decades at the Wall Street Journal, where he served as sports columnist, sports editor, deputy page one editor, and leadership columnist. 
So he has been deeply interested as a researcher, as a journalist, and he really follows his curiosity to determine what's next for him. And I think you'll find him to be open. I think you'll find him to be super intelligent and thoughtful about how teams can thrive. So here is Sam Walker. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to learn from you today. I actually thought I'd start with more emphasis on you than on leadership and and captainship, which we'll get into. But you wear a lot of different hats, editor, columnist, consultant, speaker. Um, Is there a hat that you enjoy wearing the most? I, you know, Brian, thanks for having me, first of all. But I, I've, I've always been a little blessed and cursed at the same time by being easily bored. You know, I just, I don't know what it is, but if I just do something too often, I just start to, to, I start to want to try something else. So, you know, at times I, I, I never really imagined when I was at the Wall Street Journal, you know, which was my great ambition to be at a paper like that and, and to and becoming a columnist and a sports editor and then a page one, a page one editor. Like I never thought beyond that. I thought that would be great, but then I, ultimately I kind of wore off. So I think right now, you know, the hat that I'm really enjoying the most is, is, is the consulting work is, you know, trying to take the research that I did for my book and trying to operationalize it and trying to, uh, to figure out how to actually pursue this ideal of team leadership dynamics and chemistry. Uh, and, it's like a puzzle trying to figure out how to move an organization from where it is or to where it wants to be. And um, that's been really engrossing. So I'm in the middle of really enjoying that, but I, I know that at some point the, the weird boredom gene will kick in and I'll need to, to try something else. So podcasting, I think I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do that next. That's going to be the thing. Well, when we first connected, I felt like there were a lot of similarities in, in how we view the world. I certainly never worked for the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, my dad is a journalist by trade, so I'm sure he would have been proud if I had. Um, but yeah, I can take you. It's it's fascinating through my career. I just like doing new things. Um, I have a newsletter, podcast. You know, I like social media. I wrote a book. Like, I coach executives. I work with athletes. It's, I like the the different lanes that you can jump into um where does that come from for you that idea that hey yeah i can i can go work with teams like i don't have to just you know stay right right for a newspaper i can go write a book or maybe i can go speak like where does your i don't want to say fearlessness but where does your capacity to step across those lines come from it's a great question. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I think it, it's like some of it's deep psychology and just my background. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always been a person who I, I don't, a lot of people come from somewhere, you know, they, they have a very distinct, they have a hometown, they have a, a kind of cultural world they fit into. And just for a lot of family reasons, I mean, I, I never really, I grew up in Michigan, but I, I'm not really, my family's not really from Ann Arbor, you know, uh, and I don't really have I don't really have a common kind of multicultural. I don't really have any kind of one thing. So I think when you when you don't fit neatly into some part of the world, you know, you start to think of yourself as like, well, I can kind of just blend in to different things and try different things. And that's what attracted me to journalism was this idea that, you know, I, I could see the world on somebody else's dime. But it's also like about being able to step into different experiences and different realities and 
and having a personality that allows you to be more fluid, I think, you know, about how you relate to people and how you, how you see the world and more open to different experiences. So I think that's kind of where I come from. And I think that the, the journalism role, you know, when you spend a lot of time with people talking about things that are really important and meaningful to them and their life's work and, you know, the, the complications, the problems, the decisions, the tough decisions they have to make, you know, I think you just, you start to see in a way that everything's, I, I think things become less intimidating because, you know, when you walk in a door that you've never been through before and you see that people are dealing with a lot of the same things and the same issues and the same stresses and, and they're trying to do the same sorts of things, um, you start to feel more confident about walking through doors you've never been through, if that makes any sense. Um, so I think that's part of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the idea of, of the research that I've done and, you know, the fact that it took 10 years, the fact that, you know, I spent so much time on it. Um, I do feel a, a very strong personal certainty about the truth of it and that it works. So I think that also helps me when I go into new environments because I know I put the work in and I convinced myself and I'm very skeptical, but I convinced myself that this is true. You know what I mean? So when I go into a new environment, I, I have the belief that there is a way to translate that truth to this situation. I may not be the person to deliver that, but there is a way and, and I'm, I'm as qualified as anyone to try to find that path. It's interesting because your book really breaks down these different roles on a team. And when I say roles, I, I know you get into like glue guy and all these other elements that relates to leadership, but you almost talk about these elite performers. Think of, I come from a basketball world, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, um, those types uh, who are often considered like greatest of all time type players. You talk about coaches and then you talk about captains. Um, and for you, as you think about yourself, is there one of those lanes if you were part of a team? Because you said earlier, you're like, I'm not really part of a tribe. Like I actually am kind of an individual contributor and I can float into these different spaces. But if, and when you are part of a team, what role do you tend to play? That's a great question. I had never really thought of that. I'm learning a lot. This is a therapy session. It's all, yeah. um, well, so, you know, I've, I've worn different hats. You know, at the journal, I ran the sports team and I was kind of the, I guess it was more of the coach, um, but I, I felt like I coached a little more like a captain would do it. Um, I think that when I played sports, you know, I, I unconsciously was someone who was not necessarily viewed as a captain, but I think I did a lot of that kind of leadership work um, that, you know, I, I think is not always perceived as leadership, but, you know, in my research really, really is. Um, but really, like, I don't think I have, I mean, I know I don't because I put myself through my own assessments and I know that, I, you know, there's some clear holes in my game as in terms of leadership. And um, I don't know what I'm better suited for. I mean, I, I think sometimes I'd be a better kind of coach figure, uh, but, you know, I found that very draining. You know, and, and I think captaincy, I've never really been able to experience it, I think. So I don't have a lot of frame of reference of how to how that would work for me. So I, I don't really know. I, I think I'm a little bit of a hybrid. I don't think I'm really good at either thing. Um, and, and the data that I've collected continues to confirm that I'm not the guy you would necessarily want to be the captain of your team. So I anyway. How about you? Are you, what do you think? Do you, how would you answer? I always saw myself as a leader on any sports team I played on. Um, and I was always, I think people would describe me as an alpha. Um, I think my parents would describe me as an alpha. 
and I was undersized. I was like Rudy, right? Like Rudy was my hero. I was the small little shit. Not, I, I never liked this nickname, but at camp, they used to call me the Nat. Like I was just a persistent little guy and I loved basketball. So I was just like willing to dive on the floor and, you know, go to exhaustion. Um, that was like the way I, I did it, but I also barked. Like I was unafraid to confront people and I had a chip on my shoulder for sure. I think leadership wise, sometimes I thought I was a leader, but I wasn't necessarily that's certainly based on what you talk about in your book. I wasn't necessarily seen as a leader by others. Um, sometimes, you know, what was I doing when no one was watching? I think those, that discipline, that, that work ethic wasn't always there. Um, and, you know, I think about myself now and I always ask like, would I be a good CEO? Cause I do a lot of corporate work. And I think the answer is no, uh, my attention to detail is not good enough. And I think when I look at great CEOs, I think there's like three components that they're often really strong at. They have to have great attention to detail. They have to have emotional intelligence, the ability to connect and manage people. Um, and then they have to have some creativity or a vision for where things are going and inspire with that vision. My attention to detail gets in the way for sure in my capacity to lead people. Um, yeah. And so, you know, as a kid, I've definitely evolved from when I was that, you know, then, and then, and then the other big challenge for me is, and this is where I'm going to put a question back to you. And I appreciate you asking me. Um, I struggle with bureaucracy and I struggle with um, containers and restrictions. And so because I can be highly innovative, creative, if someone says to me, we can't do that, well, why, why not? Because we've never done that. And, and that's too risky. Like I, I become a really bad employee. And so yeah. I think early in my career, I had no issue with talking back. And I think sometimes when you're in a environment, you have to learn how to be a soldier. You have to learn how to be an employee. And I'm very, very bad at that. And so I think even if someone was looking to hire me as an employee, I would red flag myself. Like, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get in order. Like I talk back to teachers. I talk back to coaches. Like I got a lot of talking to from my parents in, in my childhood. And they didn't completely mute that in me because I think there's also gifts in there. So for, for you, as you were at a place like the wall street journal, um, and, and you're, you're, you're in a bigger, more corporate environment. Um, what did you notice about yourself and compared to maybe when you have some more autonomy today to go do the work that you want to do? Yeah, I had the same problem. I mean, I really wanted to push past bureaucracy and to try new things and um, and that was, it's hard when you're in a place like that, because you're, you're upsetting a lot of balances. And also, you know, in, a, in an environment like that, when you're showing initiative and you, you're trying, you're taking on things, things tend to come to you. You know, so it's like the institution wants to pull you back to the, to the me, you know, which is, which is fine. It's not a nefarious thing. It's just, it's hard to keep that up. You know, what you're listening to you talk about, so this is the big revelation that I've had since I wrote this book. And the book is really about what are the real qualities of effective leadership. And, but not just, you know, the kind of leadership that, that wins once, but sustained excellence, the kind of culture of sustained excellence, the dynasties, right? What kind of leadership? And I do think there is a particular kind of leadership. But what I've been doing since then is trying to, to, to say, how do we adapt? How do, how do we how do organizations try to intentionally create that kind of environment from the ground up uh, or keep it in mind when they're building? And 
so that's been the focus of my work. But what I've done along the way, I mean, I've, I've worked with leaders, you know, at all different levels, different industries, you know, very accomplished people. And you, you, what you just said was so interesting to me because, you know, self-awareness is obviously huge, right? You need to know who you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are as a, as a leader. But um, what I've found is, is surprising. It's that the, the great, um, really the, the big threat to great leadership and sustained excellence is, is rarely a lack of ability. It's burnout. You know, I think the problem that I really was diagnosing with leaders who, who had failed or quit or walked away, you know, even when they were doing great, is that it, what they were really describing wasn't that they didn't have the ability. It was that they were just trying to do too much and they just drained their battery. You know, at some point they started making mistakes or they just didn't want to do it anymore. So what I've done, what I do now with most of the leaders I work with is I realize it's not about analyzing, do you have what it takes you know, do you have the right, do you need to change your personality and change your leadership style? I mean, everyone needs to change their leadership style, but what I, what I try to do now, what I've designed this database to do is, is to say, here's your natural leadership style. This is how your personality translates to the specific duties and responsibilities of leadership. So there are going to be certain things. You're going to be a good sheriff. You're going to be a good confidant. You're going to be a terrible connector. You're not a papa bear. You know, it's like, here's what you look, what your personality says about you. Now, that's not what you have to do as a leader. Like, you don't have to express. You can behave any way you want. A lot of leaders will, will work against their instincts you know, in order to be a good leader at times because they just have to. But what I think is important to know is this is who I am. And this is what creates the least friction. So I don't need to be effective as a leader, but I also need to be efficient. And the best way to be efficient as a leader is to understand what am I naturally inclined to, to thrive in and do easily and efficiently and, and what's easier for me than it is for other people in terms of leadership. And what are the things that's hard, that are harder for me that are going to eat up more of my time and energy and require more of my focused attention? And let's just try to look at that and look at the deputies I have and look at who can I can delegate some things to and just try to create a universe where leadership is is. I'm, it's effective for me. I'm doing, I'm getting the most out of my time and effort. Uh, it's, it's efficient. And also I am delegating things and emphasizing other things with, with an idea of who I have around me to help. So, I mean, you, for someone like you don't, you don't need to change. I think the thing is like, you just, you know, you need to understand this is my superpower. This is my kryptonite and let's build around that. You know what I mean? For sure. And like business decision wise, that's why I haven't taken on 20 employees and scaled and, and created this big business. Cause I don't think it actually, I don't think I'm necessarily the best person to lead that. First of all, second of all, it doesn't really align with my, my wants and, and what would give me fulfillment, but I want to go to burnout. Cause that's a, such an interesting word. And as you were saying that I wrote down four names just off the top of my head, Jim Brown, Michael Jordan, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles. And those are like, I mean, we could talk about who's all time in their sport, but you know, I wasn't alive when Jim Brown played, but you watch highlights of the guy um, and, you know, not just football across. I mean, he is just an incredible athlete and yet he retired early. I think at 30 years old, Jordan went and quit basketball at his peak and went to go play baseball. Like, and admits, like I was just emotionally drained. He had his dad, you know, get murdered. Like, 
like dealing with heavy stuff, but he was burned out. Um, Michael Phelps with his relationship with swimming has been really open about that relationship. I just thought of another, like Andre Agassi in his book talks about his relationship. Simone Biles, we just saw, and obviously there's an underpinning of psychology and, and mental health as well here. But I think all those people would probably say, yeah, I was burned out at, at some point in my yeah. sport. And so I'm wondering, like, do you not see that as much with those captains that you studied? Do you not see them burn out because, well, I have a theory, but let's start there. Like, what do you see when it relates to burnout and, and the leaders? That's a great question because, you know, I, at some point I realized there, if people ask me like, well, what is the one quality that you have to have to be this kind of a leader? And, you know, I, my whole point is it's a, it's behavior. It's what you do. It's not who you are. It's not anything you're born with. It's, it's just be making the right choices in the right context. And it's not, it's not, I mean, technically anyone can behave like a captain, like a good leader. It's not about God given talent, but, um, but the thing that I really think, you know, and I, and I don't have the data, but there's something, there's some quality and it's what I say about Bill Russell, because you think about Bill Russell and, and, you know, he's history's forgotten poor Bill Russell, who's the greatest captain in the history of sports. I mean, he, he won everywhere he went. I mean, against all odds, you know, 11 NBA championships in 13 years. I mean, I, you, I don't care what you're saying. Like that's incredible. And Sam, one so of funny. those, how many of those were when he was the coach and player? Like when, uh, I think the last two or three were when he was coaching. It gets so, insane. Right. Yeah. So like, just put that in perspective. He, they're like, all right, now he's going to be the coach and the player. And we all talk about coaches and the value of coaches and, and you do a good job in the book addressing that. But that is like, it is insane. And, and, and that he's not considered the greatest of all time is also interesting. Cause what are we measuring? What are we measuring? What is the point of playing basketball? Is it to score a lot of points or is to win championships? It's like, I'm sorry, LeBron, like Michael, there's no, there's no argument. Like you will never be that good. Sorry. Well, and a couple, and, and let's stay here. A couple of stats for people that aren't aware of Bill Russell. Uh, he led his team. He, he never led his team in scoring. He averaged 15 points a game. And then this stat that you share in the book is just an unbelievable stat. The largest defensive win share uh, of anyone of all time by a 23% margin over the next best player. Um, like you know, those, but the real stat that's amazing about Russell is that the Celtics, when he was there for 11 years, they played 10 game sevens. And they did not lose. They were ten and up Crazy. in game sevens. I mean, that's not like a coincidence, right? That's beyond a coincidence. And then for people my age, the person that we look to—that's maybe the closest to him—was the Tim Duncan. Um, and and it it is it's fascinating the impact that those teams have on the culture because look, the Celtics are playing in the Eastern Conference Finals today the legacy that Russell and other people as well, right. Um, including Red Arback, uh, left, like led to this mystique that exists in, you know, the garden and, and you look up at the jerseys and, uh, like it, it's pretty remarkable and, and the Spurs, you know, obviously they're, they're figuring their way out here uh, and they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do in the future when their head coach decides to retire, whenever that is but the Spurs have a way that if anyone that spent time with the Spurs, you go there and there's just a lot of really smart people that are rowing the boat in the same direction. Um, so the sustainability actually, even when those guys leave is pretty fascinating. 
Yeah, no, I, it's, it's definitely, it's sustainability, but it's, so the, the thing that I, I always thought about Russell is like, wait, so imagine you're Bill Russell and you have 10 rings, 10, right? You have 10, like one for each finger. And yet you're still hungry enough to, to win and chase another one, even when you're old and your knees are weak and, you know, it, it, that, that's, it's that thing. So the weird thing about these captains is they don't over-celebrate. I mean, they're not really, they're almost more relieved when they win because they feel like that's how things are supposed to go. And they don't really enjoy the winning that much and the losing really hurts. And for whatever reason, they're just incredibly consistent and they just keep coming back. And that's the difference. And, and I think the, the, the fact is that, that there is a certain type of personality or person who has certain qualities that I'm trying to identify who will get enough satisfaction and energy from that process of leadership, which is grueling and really hard on you personally, because it's a lot of work, who will get enough out of that that they can just continue to do it for a long time. Whereas someone that you mentioned, Jordan, and I mean, you know, I've, I've, Jordan is one of the great puzzles to me, leadership puzzles ever, but I think I finally figured it out. He was, Michael Jordan played a character in the NBA. He wanted to win, but he knew that as a superstar, he couldn't really be the leader. He didn't have time to really do all the sort of work behind the scenes that you need to do as a leader with the young guys and all that. Um, so he realized that the character you need to play was the sheriff, the, the enforcer, the, 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 you know, the, the, Intimidator. Intimidator. Like that was what he could handle and be Michael Jordan and help the team. So, you know, when I watched the documentary, the thing that really stood out to me is everyone talks about Michael Jordan being a leader, except Michael Jordan. Like he didn't really see himself as, as, as a leader necessarily. He was a leader, but not as the leader. He understood that he, he, he played the best role he could. And that was a very important role on a team, but without, until Bill Cartwright showed up to do all the other stuff. And, and then you had, see Kerr and Pippen doing some of it until you had other people to do all the other hard work of leadership that it didn't work. You know, so it's, but I think his burnout was related to, he was playing a character because that's not really who he is. He's not an asshole, right? I mean, he's not, I mean, he's a tough guy who's a sharp tongue and he can be really hard on people, but he's not a bad guy, right? Well, he's not highly, a, highly competitive. And yeah. he'll put his arm around you and tell, tell you he yeah. loves you and make you feel like you're the most important person in the room. And I've been around a lot of people who know him and they say he's charming. You know, he is someone who makes people feel good about themselves. Like he's not an asshole. Like he's not. Yeah. And I've heard, I know other athletes that are like that, that people that, you know, that guy's kind of an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at what's so funny is when you look at him in North Carolina and the interviews, like when he was coming out, he was just such a nice guy. Like he was a different person. And I think, coming to the NBA and understanding that he wanted to win. He had to, he had to change himself a little bit and move into that role. And, and again, I think that's where burnout comes from because that's not naturally who he is. He was playing a character. And I think that's the problem most leaders have is that we're playing a character and we're not being true to ourselves. And so I think understanding who you really are, you know, what your natural inclinations are as a leader is really important. And you don't, have to follow them religiously, but you have to make sure that you're balancing that energy so that you're, you're getting enough back, right? And not just draining your battery. But speaking of energy, you said something at the beginning of that, where you said those exceptional leaders and captains, when they win, they almost expect it. Um, and then they like go back to the drawing board and start working on the next thing. Was there, did you study them after they finished and 
were their leadership traits helpful for their lives post sport? What, what, what did you notice happened once they were outside of a locker room or once they were outside of field or a court? How did they show up in other areas of their life? I don't think there's any pattern. There's no real translation. I mean, some of them, very few of them have gone on to be great coaches, but they have. I mean, I look at Didier Deschamps, the French uh, soccer coach who's you know, won World Cups and, as a player and as now as a manager. Uh, he was able to do it. Um, I don't think that the skills of, and the instincts to be a great captain, the instincts of a great coach are the same. I don't think it's, I think it's like really stepping into the other side of the role and some people can do it and some people can't. Um, but it's certainly not, coaching has not been a great thing. You know, and, and life success, I mean, it really runs the gamut. I mean, some people uh, have been very successful, like Richie McCaw, you know, the great New Zealand rugby captain. Now he's, he's working for a helicopter company. He's, like, he's kind of moved on to another career. A lot of these people will just completely walk away, you know, and, and they don't want to hang around with sports and, you know, forever and be a, a broadcaster. They want to do something completely different. They just, they want to move on to something else. And uh, other people will, you know, can be a little bit lost. You know, I, I've definitely seen some of these captains who just seem like they haven't, they're really struggling to figure out what they should do, who they are, how they're, how they translate themselves in the next chapter. So um, I think the thing is, this is the thing, I, so much of this is context. I and mean, what I've found, the one thing that, that I really hang my hat on is that I, I, no one has studied more dynasties than me. I mean, that's what I do. You know, that's all I do. And I do it now. I work with, you know, companies, hospitals, military units, you know, branches, government that are, that are dynasties. I seek them out because I want to understand, you know, long-term excellence. And I've got, I, I'm telling you, I've not found any organization, institution that's got long-term success that did not have this basic, similar kind of leadership dynamic with a similar approach to leadership and, and who they promote into leadership. And there is really only one way, I believe, you know, in terms of a leadership dynamic to sustain excellence for a long time as a group collectively. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I am. And I just, that whole process, I mean, I think when you have the right characteristics to be part of that, um, that's great because, you know, you could be part of something really special. But if you're not in an environment like that, I don't think they work. You know, I don't think there's superpowers that you can turn any group of people into a force, right? I think you have to have the right conditions around you in order for those instincts and talents to be effective. So, yeah, it's it's weird. I, you know, I, I would say if you ask me, like, if, if, are these qualities I just want to develop in myself just because it make me a better person? I would say, yeah, I think they're better to develop, but I don't think that they 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 will make you more successful in whatever you do, you know? It's interesting because I wrote a book about performance. And so the idea of the book is your mindset for preparation is different than your mindset for performance. It was not a leadership book. And it's not a be a great human book. <laughs> and yeah. like, I'd much rather my kids be a great human than a great performer, but that's not what I've studied. And so like, Go to a religion expert, a religious expert, and ask them what it means to be a great human, and I'm sure they'll have all kinds of answers for you. Um, 
but for me, I didn't feel qualified to write that book because I don't, I'm still working on that. So, but the performance side, yeah, like I know this is what I've observed, this is what I've studied, this is what I've researched that leads to high performance. Yeah. For you, as you think about leadership and performance, are there skills that you found that exist in both? So is there a skill that you noticed that really helps leaders thrive that also help them thrive as performers? Um, is there any correlation or anything that you found in your research? God, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the not, you know, a lot of the, the interpersonal qualities, the way that you relate to other people, like, I don't think there's any correlation there between personal performance, but the three things that there are three things, which I have always called the contagious behaviors of a boss or, or, or a leader. And it's relentless effort and it's, it's toughness and it's emotional control. And so I've thought a lot about those three things and, you know, relentless effort is, is not just, you know, being a hundred percent effort person. It's no matter what the situation, I mean, you know, you could be winning, you could have in a business context, you could have a blowout quarter, or you could be on the verge of bankruptcy. You're working at the same level of intensity, right? There's only one speed. Uh, I think that is something that helps with leadership, but it also will help you as a performer. Um, I think the same is true of toughness in, in, in a business context. That, I mean, obviously in a sports context, it's playing through injury and, um, you know, but, but in a business context, it's really just showing, you know, uh, you know, so just show it's more of a projection thing. And then emotional control is probably the most interesting one to me. Um, I think that's the thing that I struggle with as a leader. It's not, it's not losing control of your emotions. It's the ability to suppress them when that's the most helpful thing for the team or, and to express them when it is helpful. And, to be able to regulate them like in, a, in an instant. And that's what these great captains have. That's what I don't have as a manager. I, I'm just too transparent with how I feel. Um, but but that those three things I think are the key. And I think the emotional control part is really interesting. So I don't think it helps you be, it may help you be a better performer and that you're able to compartmentalize and put away bad feelings and be in the present, be in the moment. So I think that helps. But really the thing that I notice about these great leaders is that they're not obvious leaders. They're not the person you walk into the room and say, that's clearly your leader because it looks like a leader, walks like a leader, talks like a leader, you know, that's not what leadership is. It's really about what you do and not who you are. Um, so part of the thing about, you still have to, it's still a confidence game. You still have to be chosen to be the leader by somebody, right? So I think the emotional control is really important because I think, anyone can see if someone is, has the ability to self-regulate, you know, and, and I think self-regulation is underrated in terms of its impact on giving people confidence in your leadership. I don't think it necessarily makes you a better leader, but it makes people confident in your leadership. So a lot of these captains were arguably, you know, the worst athlete on their team, right? They were the least physically talented but they were relentless and never came off. They were completely reliable. They play through injury and they, they had the ability to regulate emotions. So they may have been replacement level players, you know, marginal in their terms of talent. Some of them were replaced eventually by someone who they thought was better. Um, but because of those factors, I think people had confidence to keep them in. So is there anything that, that you might've noticed, Hey, this person was an amazing captain 
but they actually had all kinds of issues um, away from the field or away from the court. And I think sometimes we like to think that it's all encompassing, right? So no, you are who you are. So who you are, you know, at your craft is who you are away from it. And um, I, I've seen people that are great performers, but their marriages are in shambles or they're doing unethical things. I mean, we've all seen that or the same thing, like someone could be an amazing leader in their organization, but then, you know, they might struggle with performance or they might be great at performance, but they struggle with leadership. And so I think we tend to say, oh, that person's just amazing. First of all, every human is imperfect. We all have our flaws and our issues. Um, but like any, anything that you noticed or, or, or continue to notice in your consulting as it relates to, and let's just put them into those three buckets. There's probably more, but leadership, performance, you know, character of a, as a human being or in your personal life. You're really, you're really asking me some tough questions. I mean, I, I've not really considered that before, um, but you know, I, my process is when you, when I when you ask me a question like that and I think about it, I, I think I, I I'm inclined to say I think that if you were someone who embodies those seven traits that I talk about in my book, I'm inclined to think that you are a person of high character and that that will spill over into other aspects of your life. You know, I do think a lot of these captains had what very good relationships with with people, whether it was their spouses, partners, kids, like not all of them. But, you know, I, I do think that when I look at what really matters, if, if it's sort of family and how you age and, you know, how you the people around you, I do think that they they were good at building real relationships. And I think that's the highest mark of character that you have good relationships in your life. So I, I do think that there, it is better than worse, but you know, I, I, I so quickly think, I'm so inclined to admire these people because I spent all this time looking at them and looking for them. I don't think I've been critical enough about the impact on your being a human, you know? And I think there's definitely, I need to think about that more. I mean, I, I think there's definitely potential when you are, especially a high performer, like you study high performers. I mean, I know you've seen that there are some antisocial, difficult qualities in high-performing people. Um, high-performing leaders, I, I do think there is a, an impatience, a relentlessness, a, 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 a outcome focus. You know, th there are some things that can really get in the way and things that I, as a parent, you know, I think I, I don't consider myself a prototype captain type person, of course, but I do think that some of those qualities don't help you be a better parent. You know, I think they're, they make you a great teammate, but they make parenting. So my sense is it's a zero sum game in terms of the, the, its application to life. I think it's as good as it is difficult, but I would say overall, if you have those qualities, especially the modesty uh, and the sort of natural uh, tendency to think about others and to look outward, I think you're going to be a good human being. I don't think you can be a bad human being and have those qualities. Yeah. And, and I guess where I go here and I don't know the answers, that's why I'm asking the questions. Like if I knew the answers, I would just be like, Oh, this is what I, what I, the answer is, but I love yeah. like playing. Cause that's how we can learn. And so what I think about is the sacrifice and you use that word a lot that someone might put themselves through in order to become a champion in sport might take away from what's needed to be a champion in their own home. And um, we see this in the corporate world too. the person that's just obsessed with their work 
and neglects their children um, or neglects their relationships, even beyond marriage. It could be friendships. And so like, I think in life, there isn't this like seesaw that we balance. It's like, Oh, I'm, I'm home and I'm really great. And then it's work. It's like, it's like, these things are integrated and they have effects on each other. And so when I have people on the podcast that are high achievers, I'm often trying to find out, all right, well, how are you also achieving in your personal life? And I think it's a massive challenge because I'll use children as an example. I have a five and six year old. My five and six year old are amazing. But Sam, I don't have a lot of friends that are five and six years old. Like if I can chat with you for an hour or my children for an hour, at this point in my life, I am actually more interested in learning from you for an hour. And that's no knock on my brilliant children, right? Like it's no knock. But like, what happened on party today? Come on. It's a challenge, right? And so it, it, it is. And I think we're human. And so I don't think someone's a bad human because their marriage might have fallen apart. Maybe that's what was needed. Maybe that's that's okay. That's not necessarily a bad thing, depending on what they want and what their dreams are and their goals are. But it is a challenge, right? Like, how do I win in these different areas of my life? And I think someone might be able to really win at their profession and really lose in their personal life um, or the opposite. Hey, maybe they're amazing in their personal life. And as a result, maybe professionally, they're not going to be great. And maybe that's okay, too. Like, why? Why does it matter? It's like, yeah, no, they do their job. They're professional, but they're not going. I mean, you tell some gruesome stories about people sacrificing their bodies and their minds. And, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a real, it's a sacrifice. So that's where I start to wonder. Um, the other part that I'm really curious about is away from sport. So you said earlier, you love also working with organizations outside of sport that have sustained success and, and you love learning from them. What similarities have you found exist there? And then are there differences that you notice outside of sport? I think you and I both love sports, so we can talk about sports and analogies, but there's not always clear similarities. Sports is is different than a lot of other organizations, and it is zero-sum, and there is winning and losing, and it is often a short-term versus a long-term play. So uh, noticing anything different as you go into these other organizations while you're also uh, consulting the, some of the greatest sports organizations. Yeah, it's so, I mean, obviously the context is so different. And when you look at a, like a, a big company that's got kind of a, a long-term history of success, um, what I've found is different, which is it's really about the quality of the, of the managers, you know, all the way down. Uh, and it's the biggest separator for me has been, you know, I talk about water carriers in my book. I talk about people who, I call them rowers in a corporate context, I mean, people who just row. You know, and they're not always thinking about the next move and their next promotion, but they'll actually stay on the oar and row when they need to row. And those people are often not, they're not the superstars of people you, I mean, they're often redundant, right? In a time of success, like a lot of companies are like, let's get rid of this whole layer of, you know, but, but those are the people who they recognize each other, they work together, they form the spine and these great dynasties that are big organizations have that spine you know, running from the lowest level of management to the highest of people that row. And, and they, they promote these people into management positions, even if they're not the, the superstar. So that's the one thing I've seen in a big organization. But in terms of, you know, we're talking about the Marines or the, the, the FBI or, or uh, you know, a, a, this orthopedic hospital that's, that's a, one of the best in the world. You know, what, 
what you see uh, that's really fascinating to me is a culture. And, you know, there is a distinct culture and, it, and it's always a little different. No, there's no two dynasties that have exactly the same culture. And it's something that seems intangible and impossible to define. But that's what I've actually, that's what I've been doing, you know, with the teams that I work with. I, I, I'm, I, I use an assessments to, to actually say, this is the culture of this place. So these are the things that are not negotiable, you know, about these are the traits that just really, if you don't have these traits, it's not going to work well for you here. Here are the things that are highly flexible. You know, you can have, you can be all over the range in this regard, but here are the things that, that you know, that, that really underpin this culture. And I, I, everybody has to fit it perfectly, but, you know, more times than not, if you're not sure about someone, do they fit your culture, you know, and just go there and, and you'll be okay. And that's the thing about, about these companies in business, whether it's business or sports, you know, so much of this whole process is just, who are you? You know, who are, what is this place? And not just what do we, what's our mission statement we ran through our, you know, PR agency and our consultants. It's like, what are people really like who thrive, you know, and, and what are you, who are you like, you know, what are, who are you as a leader? Like, what do you really value? Why are you doing this? Are you doing this for your own, you know, adulation and, and benefit? Because that's fine. But are you doing it for the collective result? You know, what, what gives you the ego gratification that you need? But it's like so much of it is just basic. It's who are you? And that's like, that's the what that's all these companies think about who do we want to be? You know, let's come up with a mission statement. Who do we want to be? Who do we, how do we position? What do you want to be? Well, who are you? Let's start there. Like, and just make, be the best version of who you are, you know, not who you want to be because your brand managers are talking. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I've worked with sports teams, we often, I often like this analogy. I've worked with sports teams that go to the grocery store and just look and see some, some nice things that are fresh and just say, Oh, I'm going to buy that tonight. Then they bring it home and it sits in their fridge because they've already planned out their other meals. So they've got this great piece of fish but it goes bad in the fridge because they have other stuff planned. And so now this beautiful fish is not going to work for them. Whereas there are other ones that say, all right, what's our list at the grocery store? What is the next week look like? And then they go to the grocery store and they know exactly what they're looking for. And they have clarity around what they're shopping for. And so I've worked with I've worked with three different NBA teams and it's amazing because some are really intentional about what they're shopping for and others are just looking for talent and they're drafting based on talent and talent matters. You and I both know that. And so does culture and so does, you know, who someone is and what they value. And so I think it, it is the bucket that the great teams, they know what they're shopping for. Um, and by the way, they know what they're shopping for from a talent standpoint too, because it fits in their system and what they want to do and how they want to do it. Um, so the ones that have clarity on those things are huge. I want to go to a little deeper and, and sort of double click on the culture piece. Cause you said I assess for it and I try to figure out, all right, who are you? What does that assessment process look like? This is my, my, my deep IP secret <laughs> laboratory. Um, no, I use a I, I use a personality assessment, which is not a fancy thing. I just I but it's not bespoke to me. I just you know I I, I try to evaluate. I've evaluated hundreds of leaders, you know, in different fields and CEOs and military commanders and 
captains and coaches. And, um, and so what I've been able to do is kind of model, you know, certain leadership traits and what they look like in, a, in just a basic personality context. But also, you know, I, by, by giving this to the players on teams, um, you can quickly start to see what the culture is. You know, and, and what I've done, I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure out how to quantify it, but I, you know, all the great dynasties that I've written about and studied, I, I've really tried to, to identify their culture and, and label it. And I have a system that I use to, to label what a culture is. Um, and, and it's funny, like they're, they're all a little different. I mean, they're not the same. The Patriots culture is not the same as the New Zealand All Blacks. It's not the same as the Spurs with Duncan. It's not the is the same as the Montreal Canadiens, you know, with Maurice Richard. I mean, they're all, they were all slightly different. So, you know, I, I think that that's the first thing, which is what is, you, what is your unique culture, you know, and what do you have? And if you're building a team, you know, what do you want it to be? But what do you want it to be is not subjective or objective. It's, it's not only up to you. You know, the great teams figure out, okay, let's think about who we are, who we want to be. Let's think about the economic and competitive realities of the business brand. You know, and, and what are we, how do we take advantage of the advantages that are afforded to us? Um, and how do we use that in correlation with the culture we're building and the values we have? And how do we put all of that together so it works symbiotically? This takes a long time. You know, and I, I the great joy of, of, for me is working with the LA Rams. And this is, you know, year four or so, and, and seeing the whole thing, the whole operation from soup to nuts supports the same um, idea. So you mentioned the Rams and we're not going to get into all the specifics with the Rams. I know you have a relationship with them, uh, obviously high of high winning a Super Bowl. Um, and it is amazing to, to observe from afar what Les Need and Sean McVay have done, you know, from a leadership standpoint, but then the players, which you are mentioning, are, are often what drive the culture and the behavior. And you think about an Aaron Donald or a Cooper Cup, these guys who are superstars, but but also from the outside looking in uh, tend to carry their own water, so to speak. I want to actually move away from the Rams, uh, but go to California and, and go to Google. And so I'm sure you're familiar with the Google study as far as what made successful teams at Google and the research they did. And for those that are unfamiliar, I'll just give a little background here. So Google set out to see, all right, who makes a great team? And what they found was rather than who makes a great team, that the factors that exist within a team determine whether or not that team is successful. And, and they focused on really five factors. The first one being psychological safety, which means that team members feel safe to take risks and be vulnerable in front of each other. The second one is dependability. They get things done on time and meet their high bar for excellence, structure and clarity. Team members have clear goals, plans, uh, and roles, uh, meaning. So the work is personally important to team members and then impact that they think that their work matters and that they can create some sort of change in the world. When you hear all that and you map that on top of your research, what's missing? What do you agree with? How does it land with you? So I, I've obviously paid a lot of attention to that study. And I think the psychological safety piece to me has been really um, important. And I've thought a lot about that, but I have a theory about what I think it is. Um, I've, I've worked with so many teams, talked to so many leaders. Like, I like to hear like what they're wrestling with and what their problems are. 
and what um, keeps them up. A lot of it's, it's retention. It's retention's big now, and you know, engagement and and uh, uh, DNI, you know, and and uh, productivity and 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 that loyalty and and that sense of mission and purpose. All these things that you mentioned are all you know factors that I think people want and are worried about trying to create inside teams. But you know, I, I it sounds self-serving, but honestly, like I I really believe, and I think some of the research, such as this Gallup study that was recently done really backs it up, which is everybody, I don't care if you're a millennial, you're Gen Z or boomer, whatever you are, uh, where you come from, what your expectations are, everybody wants to be on a great team. You know, it just, it, everybody will rise to that occasion. I think it's in our wiring to understand, to recognize that we're on a great team and to know how to play our part and to try to preserve it. I think they're self-perpetuating in a way because everybody starts to contribute uh, even unconsciously to the collective good. Uh, and I think when you have managers and you pay more attention to the kinds of managers you have and not necessarily who's the star performer, who's got the most respect in the room from on a professional level, but really who's got the best relationships and who's the best at, at building that sort of camaraderie and building that team spirit. Um, you know, and you start promoting those people. And, you know, I think that's the difference. I think the more great managers you have and good teams you have inside an institution, I think all of the problems that people mentioned today will be mitigated by that because people will be more productive. They'll be more loyal. They'll be more engaged. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll be more inclusive. They'll be more, you know, all the things that we're trying to pursue. Um, you know, I don't think everyone thinks millennials, you know, how do we figure them out? With Gen Z, they're just so hard to figure out. Well, maybe they just want to be on a good team. You know, maybe you don't have, maybe you're promoting the wrong people, or maybe the people you're promoting and managers are of a generation that does not understand them at all. You know, which is what I see often. I, I get in a room with a bunch of, you know, old white guys that are like, why, why are we losing so many employees? Because, uh, because <laughs> you're the managers, right? You're not, you're not, you're not people who are not managing them or on their wavelength. And, but anyway, I, so I, to answer your question, I mean, it's really, uh, you know, a lot of it is just is, is, is thinking about management in a different way. And, you know, psychological safety for me is, is, is the important one. And, but what I really think it is in, in what I've, when I've studied great teams is it's a, it's a kind of communication. And I write about it in the book, I call it practical democratic communication, that leadership's not about speeches and, and talking to the group. It's about this intense one-on-one -on -one communication where you talk as much as you listen and uh, you if you watch Tim Duncan was a master of this, he would pull people aside and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them if they needed something or they were uh, having trouble or they were um, even doing something well. Uh, and he would listen. He would make very intense eye contact. It was very intense one-on-one -on -one personal engagement. And he would listen. So what that does is it creates a, a sense inside a group that you will be held accountable for what you do immediately. Because Duncan would immediately deal with something that was a problem. So you'll be held accountable. So you're going to be held accountable immediately. So you know that. But you also know that you're going to be heard. You know, you're not going to be taken and put in a corner and, and lectured to until this is why you're, you, you, you made this mistake. You're an idiot. You were, you know, go stand in the corner. It's not that. You're going to have a chance to explain yourself and why you made the mistake, why you did it, well, what you were what you learn and, and just the act of being heard, you know, makes people feel safe. And I, I think it creates that sense of safety where 
you know, the Spurs were famous for how much they talk as a team, you know, a constant dialogue between them. And that is a mark, a, a mark of safety. And I think that's really where it comes from. Um, and, you know, the problem is, I think when Google's looking at this, you know, they're not doing, it's very hard to assess people. But I bet if you went back and looked at all the people who are in the high managing teams, that's how they communicate, right? That's their communication style. They, it's actually a lot more about the people managing the team than they realize. You know, I think Google, like, they want to make it linear, right? They want to, they want to, they can't do an algorithm for like a person, right? But you can do an algorithm for traits and behavior. So I feel like their natural inclination is to say, okay, it's the traits, not the people, right? That's a very Google kind of Silicon Valley thing. It's not the people, it's the process and the, you know, the, the wiring, right? It's, it's easier to scale. It's easier to scale. It's not the hardware, it's the software, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's so easier I to think, scale. I think they were a little wrong about that. I think it's really about managers. Yeah. All right. So stay there for me. I think of a sport like hockey where they wear the C and then there's an A, uh, which by the means alternate, uh, not assistant, but same sort of concept. And I think in Washington, D.C., where we had this great, great hockey player for the last 20 years, Alex Ovechkin, they ended up giving him the C. Um, But there were other guys along the way that I think were also captains. Um, One of them you actually mentioned in your book, Brooks Light. Um, who went to Toronto afterwards and actually said in your book, you say, he said, Oh, we are all captains. Like we don't, we don't need to necessarily establish it, but I'm curious when you're in that situation. And, and I think Ovechkin has captain qualities as well. And I don't know him personally, so I'm not going to get into him specifically, but let's say you are running a hockey team and you have the best player and it's not your best leader. And in that sport, wearing that C really does carry weight. In other sports, it doesn't necessarily carry the same weight. But in their sport, getting the C is a big deal, and it is serious in their sport. What do you do to that elite player if you say, hey, we're not giving you the C because this person is more of a captain? What's the communication like to the performer to ensure that they are still rowing the boat in the same direction? It's a great question. You know, it's funny with hockey because you're right. It is the one sport where I think the captaincy is held in a certain esteem, but just from my own personal experience, like I have had the least contact with NHL teams. Of Go to NHL. soccer then. Go to soccer because the armband in soccer also carries a lot of weight. Well, no, no, but, but I, I do. And yeah. the NHL, it's the same for everyone. I was just making that point that I think, I don't think NHL teams really think enough about this whole thing because I think they, they, because they do value captaincy, but they think they all know how to do it. So too often they give it to, I mean, they've given captaincies to 19 year old kids, right. And they give captaincies to the best player all the time. And, you know, I think this is a bit of an NHL situation because um, there is a, a level of bending over backwards for that franchise talent. And I don't know if that's a selling tickets thing or if it's a, um, I don't know how that started, but I, I, I know that, you know, high hockey, especially, I mean, you know, you have different line of line changes, right? I mean, it's not about one guy. I don't understand this emphasis on the star player. It's, I think it's overheated and I think they're paying them too much. And I think it's, I don't, I don't understand, but that's part of the problem. I think just in the league mindset. But so when it comes to a, a superstar talent, this is the most, un, probably more underrated than the captaincy is that all of these great dynasties had a superstar. Most almost all of them had a superstar, rarely the captain. Um, but this person was 
uh, the only word I can say is team oriented, a team oriented superstar. I call it a North star. It's, it's someone who is, and Steph Curry is my favorite modern example. I mean, Pele was one of them, you know, as another example, um, Leon Messi is an example. Uh, it's someone who is fundamentally knows that they can't be the leader. They are the focus of all the attention. And, but they, they can't be the leader and no one really expects them to be the leader. They want to leave them alone to be the best in the world at what they do. But when that's over and it's just a team, they are, they are part of the group. They identify with the group. They, they will listen to the leaders. They follow, willingly follow the leaders of the group. They, they don't put themselves out there. You know, they're not t- like Tim Duncan. They don't ask to, to have a suite for themselves on the road. They, they, you know, they don't expect special treatment. Um, and, and if you if you have that, you you need that. I mean, I don't know if you, I don't know if it's as essential as having the right kind of captain, but I, I think without that, um, it's really hard to create a dynasty. And, and that that is the personality. And it's just not out there very often. And I, a lot of teams will have someone who, who doesn't have that personality, who's really a me-focused person and is not really interested in the team collective as much. Um, you can't win over a long term with a player like that. So it's very hard for a general manager to say, I'm not interested in this guy, this amazing talent, you know, who's, who's got the best numbers in the world. But you have to know that if, you're, if your goal is to win a lot of championships, to be very good for a long time, you just can't have someone like that on your team. So, you know, if, my thing is it's a litmus test. If you don't give the captaincy to that star player and that star player is pouty and pissed, and takes it out on everybody else, then you've got the wrong star player. Mm. I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, you could manage it any way you want, but, you know, Seth Curry knows that Andre Iguodala is really the captain of that, leader of that team. He likes that. He wants that to be the case. And if you don't have that dynamic, like, it's not going to work anyway. So, I don't know. You know, manage away. Yeah, let's stay there. I love this piece. So, if you ask me, who do I want to build a team around in the last, 20 years in the NBA, uh, I would say Steph Curry or Tim Duncan. And like, I, I, I think both those guys are unique superstars because I think they're very comfortable in their skin and I think they want to win and they're going to do what it takes to help the team win. And you're not in their professional and they work their asses off. Um, and I think they, do a lot of their work in a unique way. I think you would probably make a distinction between Duncan from a leadership standpoint, which is interesting. Um, but the, for, regardless of that, um, there's a couple of things that came to mind as you were talking. Number one is, um, gosh, yeah, you might have the wrong star. And so you need to be able to have, because you need both is what I'm hearing. I need leadership and I need superstar talent. And, and so it's not an either or. It's like we need to find both and we need to be relentless in finding great leadership and great talent. And so if you go to that talent and say, Hey, and maybe they are the leader, that would be like the best case scenario. But if they're not, it's like, Hey, we're going to take some of this burden off of you. We think this person is really going to help with the day to day. And it reminds me of a CEO and a COO, like Steve jobs comes to mind. It's like everything you read about jobs was not that he was a great leader, but he was an amazing visionary. He was amazing. Creativity wise. It's like, give him an operator that can really work on the day to day stuff and free him up to be great at what he does. But a lot of times that founder know they want control. And I just went over this with a friend who is at a company that is skyrocketing. And he's like, the CEO's toxic. 
and he doesn't know how to manage people. And he, my friend's leaving. He's out. And by the way, the CEO is out and the other person's out. Like people are leaving. And so I think it's the same thing in business. It's like, hey, how do we get people to do that? And if you have a CEO who's toxic, like that's probably the wrong CEO. Um, but back, back to this piece about Igadala, because I think it's a really interesting one. So Igadala went to Memphis and was at Memphis for a minute. And everything I've read is like the Grizzlies players were like, get this guy out of here. We need to establish our own thing. And he's coming in and trying to tell us what to do and how to do it. And so you mentioned fit earlier. Um, I had uh, Scott O'Neill, who used to be the president of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. And, and when I said, what do you look for in fit in this organization? He goes, I don't talk about fit. I talk about alignment, which is a really cool distinction there because perhaps Igudala wasn't aligned with this young group of stars that are coming up. And while he might be a great leader, he may not be a great leader for those people. And so yeah. finding the right leader to your point that matches the culture that you're creating and you're doing is also essential. So now he's back in Golden State and they know that he works in that environment with those stars, so to speak. I think that's another that culture. His, that's yeah. culture. And the Memphis has its own culture. It's a good culture, apparently. But it's not the same. So you can't. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I mean, that's the really the next sort of wave of research for me is, you know, how does the leadership, how, what is the relationship between it, the culture and the kind of leadership you need? Um, but, you know, I find that a lot of it, that's intuitive. I mean, I think that if you're a good leader and you care about the team, um, you understand, does you just understand the cultural kind of leadership works? Like, I, I don't, I think it's just, natural and it's not a it's not a you don't need my help because i think you can you can see it uh, but yeah no that's a perfect example i mean that's that culture i mean that's a, the warriors have a very interesting culture and, and they have a, a, a coach who's you know been through cultures like that san antonio and the bulls and has seen it up close uh, and is very hands-off and there's a there's a very there's a kind of an edginess to the communication in inside that group which is to me the great sign of strength is if you can really argue and fight and, um, and still feel like togetherness and still compromise and, and make a plan and move forward. That productive conflict is so great. I don't, that's not every culture though. I mean, it's probably not the Memphis culture. They're probably not a, you know, a fight and argue and come out at the end, you know, unified kind of team. So, um, yeah, you're right. It doesn't always fit. It's not, yeah. it's not instantly translatable. The other NBA culture that I'm so curious about and I haven't spent any time with are the Heat. And they're a perfect example of what you're talking about because um, Udonis Haslam, un undrafted free agent, went to University of Miami, you know, a rugged backup power forward, became like a starting power forward. He's 41 years old, going on 42. And you watch him and he's now got this gray beard. He's still on the team. People are like, wait, he's still on the team. And there were times during the regular season where you'd see him have confrontations with Jimmy Butler and, and some of the other players. And they could have made him an assistant coach a long time ago, but without knowing anything uh, specifically and talking to them, there's a reason why they have him as part of that team. He's their captain. He's their leader. And by the way, he's not touching the floor. Like he's not even 
playing anymore. And Iguodala is not even playing that much in Golden State. So there is, it's interesting as we look at, maybe those are right now two of the best cultures. They might be playing in the NBA finals. Who knows what's going to happen? But uh, both of those teams have an OG, so to speak, that um, definitely is there when it comes to culture. And it's interesting because Iguodala has bounced around I don't know how many teams he's played on, but he's played on a ton. Whereas Udonis has been just faithful to Miami. It's his city. Like he's been with, you know, the big three he's, he's been with Shaq and Wade. Like he's just been and seen it all. Um, But you see, like he garners the respect of that team and, and anyone that you talk to in the NBA about the heat and they have obviously Pat Riley and they have Eric Spolstra and they have front office members who have stayed when they could have gone other places. Um, and you see them have stars that come and go, but they have a competitiveness, a toughness, a culture that Udonis represents. And there's just an article about all the undrafted free agents that are impact players for them. And so it's fascinating. I love studying this stuff because of course, teams sometimes win with overwhelming talent, but that sustained success. I think usually a culture plays a big role. Yeah, no, I think it's all culture. I think, I mean, my, my view of this is, you know, what I tell teams, there's really three phases of a dynasty in, in sports, especially. The first phase is, you know, the building part. And that's, that can take a decade. I mean, you have to get the right fundamental pieces in place, the right people, the whole idea, the whole economics, everything. That takes a long time. And, and that phase ends with the first breakthrough, which is usually, you know, a trip to the conference finals or you make the finals and lose, right? There's a little bit of a breakthrough. And then once you have that breakthrough, here's the thing. You're good enough. You've got what you need. You've got enough to be good, right? You, you're at the threshold now of being good enough. So you, then you start this phase, which is really about uh, committing to what you have. So it's about figuring out how do we get here? Who are we? What, what does this really look like? You know, what are the, the sticking points and friction points? So that committing phase is really short. You got a year, two years, maybe three where you're committing to it and you've got to make really hard decisions. You're going to have to get rid of some people that you can't imagine getting rid of. You have to bring in, some, you're going to have to take some really difficult changes because you need to buy into what the essential qualities are that got you to that breakthrough. And that's where most teams fail. You know, they have a little breakthrough, maybe they win a championship, then they, they don't do the hard work of understanding who they really are, how they got there and making the tough decisions. But if you get through that process and you get to the end of that, that's when you can actually win it. You really, then you win again and then you're for real. And that's, then you go into this other phase, which is maintaining, you know, which is, and maintaining is a, these three management jobs are completely different. Building is completely different from committing and committing is completely different from sustaining. So, you know, it's the mindset, what you have to do, the kinds of decisions you make, uh, your, your approach to making everything has to change in those three phases. And, you know, that's, it just doesn't happen. I mean, teams don't differentiate. They don't understand where they are in the process, you know, and a lot of times, you know, they, they, that's what trips them up. Well, then the challenge comes that the coach doesn't have psychological safety and their general manager doesn't have psychological safety. So they get hired and they say, all right, here's our five-year plan we're building. And after year two of sucking and the fans up in arms and the stadium's empty, all of a sudden ownership will say, Oh, wait a second. Like we need to win. I'm sick of losing. And by the way, most people that own sports teams are used to winning outside of their sport. So I think that trips them up, but I love that idea of like, where are you and locating, all right, where are we? Um, and maybe we'll take some more risk when we're building, 
or maybe we'll over index on this when we're building or, or when we're committing, maybe we'll do this. And, and then we're sustaining, we have to figure out ways to be really creative. Um, that's a, that's a cool model. I really love that. Um, Sam, what are you most curious about today as you, as you sit here and think about like what the next year you're going to look into and study and research, like, what are you most curious about? I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. I, I'm so wrapped up in, in the research that I'm doing that I, I rarely think about other things that I, that are make me curious, but I, I don't know. I think there is a, one thing I'm really curious about is, is generational differences. Um, and I'm spending a lot of time talking to people about that, thinking about that. I've been working with the U S men's national team. Uh, and that is an incredibly young team. In what sport? Soccer? It's soccer, yeah. I, and incredibly young, right? I mean, 19, 20-year-olds. Youngest team in the world by far. And uh, it's really interesting, and I've noticed with them and, and also other younger people of that age cohort, there's a different approach and view of leadership and a different relationship to it. Uh, it's not... It's not what I'm accustomed to or what I grew up with. Uh, and I think it's really important to, to figure out. I think a lot of people are actually wrestling with that and they're not wrestling with all these things they think they're wrestling with. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out what, what the differences really are, what they mean. I don't think there's any less ability to lead or any less potential. I think there's more, in some ways qualities in this generation that are really helpful to building great teams. Um, but there is a little bit of reluctance uh, that I've never seen before. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that. So that's something I'm definitely spending more time on. Trying to figure out how, what that really is and where it comes from and, um, you know, how you build around it. I mean, my thinking at this point uh, is you need more managers who are closer to that age cohort, you know, because I think some of this stuff is inexplicable. It's just generational wiring that, you know, you wouldn't understand. Like there's certain things like I'm Gen X, like there's certain Gen X things like we all get, right? But but you wouldn't get it if you're not, you know, but I think with this group, that's really important, the younger cohort. There's just certain things that they that they think and they ways they operate. And if you if you're if you're more of a native or you're closer to them, then you will avoid the landmines and problems that come with that and you will understand how to manage it just intuitively. So I think younger managers is probably are really important right now. Um, get rid of us Gen X people because you know we're just we don't fit in anywhere. Um, All right, as a as a millennial, I'm going to give you my opinion on that. I think it's bullshit. Like I think you were on it before. I completely agree with create great environments, create great teams. I think generation is one of like 15 things that matters for somebody. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier like your identity. It's like you can't sort of put him in a box, you know, is he Midwestern, you know, I, you, you know, what's our religion? What's our race? What's our ethnicity? Um, are we male? Are we female? Are we homosexual? Are we heterosexual? Are we this? Are we that? Like to me, generation is a bucket and it is one of those buckets, but I, 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 I love studying generations because, you know, we think of the hippie generation, my parents' generation, we, we literally call them a hippie generation and they are politically the most conservative generation that we've ever had. 
And so like, to me, every generation thinks that the generation behind them is different and this and that. And yes, technology changes. And yes, Kevin Durant, who is considered one of the best basketball players of all time, was just on with David Letterman talking about smoking weed and being high on his show. So yes, the world changes. But humans, I think we still crave belonging. We still crave leadership. We still crave this concept of being part of something bigger than ourselves. That wiring has been around for a long, long time. And that is that wiring's not going to change in a generation. And so I, I don't want to be harsh about calling BS, but like, I love studying the generational stuff because I think it is one of the most overrated, overblown things. And you said earlier, you're like, every company is trying to figure out these people are all leaving. Yeah. Because they have the autonomy. If you gave, by the way, when you give 60 year olds autonomy, guess what they do? They work from home. You know what, you know what they do? Like go, go follow the C-suite at any big company. You know what they do on Friday? They're playing golf. So we like talk about this idea of them being lazy and this and that I'm telling you, you come with me to a college wrestling room and you tell me if those kids are lazy, you go out on a river and be with a bunch of collegiate rowers. And you tell me if they're lazy, I'll call BS on you because they're, they're still working their tails off. Now, do they think about the world differently? Of course we progress, we change, we evolve, but those hippies that didn't want to go to Vietnam and didn't want to go to war. What do you think my grandpa was saying to my dad when he wanted to protest in Washington, D.C. I'll tell you what he was saying. He was saying, you're not welcome in my house because he was not part of the greatest generation. So I could, this gets me fired up. And if, if you want to write a book about generations, I'm in, like, let's do it. No, 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 no. no. I get super fired up about this. Really fired up. Um, Well, no, here's the thing. Like, I I agree with you. I want to be very clear about my thinking on generations. (laughs) So I think there, when it comes to leadership, it's like fads. It's like, bell bottoms versus straight leg it's like there there is a there is a leadership kind of juju you know in That's every fair. like and, and and it's that and the and the one of the up and coming players you know it's it's this thing that they just don't want to assert themselves i think a lot of it is the information insecurity that kids have from social media right because you don't want to proclaim yourself to be something and then you know you get this blowback that you're not that thing i mean i think authenticity is important and they're a little bit of afraid of of declaring themselves in the way that people used to say i want to be the captain the captain you know you don't do that in this kind of day and age but so it's really more about style than substance i mean it's the same rules and behavior works and it always will work to the end of human time it's really about trying to crack the code to get to get the process started with them, you know what I mean? To get them thinking about leadership in a way that doesn't seem repellent or, or braggy or, or wrong, you know what I mean? Or frightening. I, but I guarantee, and I look, I've spent time with Greg Burhalter. He's who connected the two of us. Um, I was just in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. I guarantee you there's a captain on that squad, right? And so for you, it's just maybe looking from a different lens and sifting through different things to try to figure out, all right, who is who is the captain, so to speak, or who are the people that are are going to add to our culture? Um, and I think that's that's what you're saying. It just might look different. It might sound different. Um, it might present in a different way. Just like my parents and their generation, and what leadership looked like for them is different than serving your country um, and going to war. And and so we just need to attune and, and think differently. Sam, 
This has been a blast. Um, we had more interruptions in this podcast for those that are listening than I think I've ever had. So I think I heard something. I heard sirens. I heard barking. We had FedEx. We had uh, audio issues to start. We had just about everything. So I'm going to do my best to edit this as best I can to make it as clean as possible. But hopefully, regardless of what it sounds like, people got a lot out of our conversation today. I know I did. Um, so I'm really excited to share you with our community. If people want to learn more about your book, Captain Class, um, or what you're up to, or if they're interested in your consulting services, where can people find uh, your information? Uh, well, I have a, a website, which is under uh, under new management. So it's not, it's just kind of a shadow thing right now. Uh, but there's a contact form there. It's by samwalker.com. And, and I'm on Twitter, you know, kind of half-assedly. Awesome. I'm on Twitter. I think he's, he's Sam Walkers on, on Twitter. I'm yeah. at Brian Levinson. I'm pretty active. So you can follow me there. LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. You listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Sam enjoyed it. Uh, looking forward to meeting you in person real soon. And, uh, and we'll talk again. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Building is completely different from committing, and committing is completely different from sustaining. So, you know, it's the mindset, what you have to do, the kinds of decisions you make, uh, your, your approach to making, everything has to change in those three phases. And, you know, that's, it just doesn't happen. My teams don't differentiate. They don't understand where they are in the process. You know, and a lot of times, you know, they, they that's what trips them up.